millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. They've been on the campaign trail for some time now. It's grueling. But if you're going to win... You have to make like you love it. Please welcome to the show Paul Meskel, everybody. I know Brendan Fraser. Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Please welcome Michelle. Ah. Kate Blanchett. <laughs> Film awards, the statuettes, plaques and globes get given to those who convince a small, select group of people to vote their way. And the biggest gift of all is in the hands of those who, in this final week of voting, will decide who gets the Oscars. Maybe in the day of Jane Fonda and Robert Redford, this was an uncontroversial business. But not anymore. And certainly not this year. The nominations are in for the 2023 Academy Awards and, as always, there are plenty of surprises to be found. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences releasing a statement not mentioning any film by name, but saying they'll be conducting a review of the campaign procedures around this year's nominees to ensure that no guidelines were violated. The statement may not have named names, but still everyone knew. One nomination for a British actress was a bit too much of a surprise. Just days before Academy members began voting on the nominees, there was a sudden surge of A-listers' support, with stars including Charlize Theron, Edward Norton and Gwyneth Paltrow hosting screenings of the film. And once the debate was started, it widened. Cinematic history is 100 plus years old. I would dare say that the system is deeply, deeply impacted by uh, systemic racism that has shaped our country. You're listening to Stories of Our Times and The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, can the Oscars lobbying machine ever be fair? My name is Kevin Moore and I'm the chief film critic of The Times. So what that means in literal terms is I spend every Monday and every Tuesday, sometimes parts of Wednesday, in dank, dingy little screening rooms in Soho, watching movies morning till night. And you're always with the same people, aren't you? The other film critics are all there as well. Yes, a hive mentality is what you're trying to avoid. There are the same groups of critics. So my policy is always to get in and get out quickly because I can't bear it if I hear someone else's thoughts about a film because I feel like I'm quite impressionable. So I just literally have to go in, watch the film and run before I hear anyone else. (laughs) 
Kevin, tell us about the moment you heard about the Best Actress nominations this year for the Oscars and tell us who was on the list and what your reaction was. Yeah, I, I was I was watching all the nominations appear live. Uh, there hadn't been many upsets, but the Best Actress thing was quite bizarre because the year so far had been very predictable. There was the same group of five or six actresses who were landing the slots. It was Kate Blanchett always, Anna de Armas for Blonde, Blanchett was for Tar, Michelle Yeoh and Michelle Williams. And everyone kind of expected that it was either going to be Viola Davis for The Woman King or Daniel Deadweiler for Till in the fifth slot. And when they're calling the nominations... This ostensible surprise was Andrea Riseborough for To Leslie, a sort of melodrama about a drunk single mom in Texas. What? You stole money from Darren. I didn't steal money. Did he tell you that? Come on, lie to me again. Lie to me again. I'm your mother. I would not steal money from you. It wasn't too much of a surprise for me, if only because the week beforehand, one of the heads of the London PRs, who's well-connected with LA, had just said to me at a screening, oh, you know, Andrea Riseborough is going to get an Oscar nomination. I had heard about a sort of campaign building for us. So when I saw the nomination drop, I was like, oh, so, you know, he was right. But at the same time, it's a bit of a shocker because if all things were being equal and if it was about fairness and talent and the performances of the year, it shouldn't really be there as a nomination. Oh, was that just your reaction or was it the reaction of the rest of the wider media, I suppose we'd have to say? The wider media was completely shocked. We thought either maybe Viola Davis or Danielle Detweiler would come in and take that spot, but an incoming surprise sneak attack coming off the back is Andrea Riseborough with two Leslie. And you heard an audible gasp mm-hmm, uh, yeah. in the auditorium because no one saw her coming at all. A very, very 11th hour campaign had built for Riseborough, and it was all celebrity based. Um, you know, she had celebrity friends speaking out for her, but that was seen as sort of a you know, media piffle, tittle tattle. It was just very light and fluffy, and nobody took it seriously. So, Kate Blanchett gave her a big boost when she received her Golden Globe on January the, the 10th. Kate Blanchett, in her speech, said, You know, there's no competition. What about Andrea Riseborough? And there's a big woo woo from the back of the room. In the meantime, Kate Winslet said, you, you should be up for everything. You should be winning everything. Andrea Riseborough, this is, the I think, the greatest female performance on screen I have ever seen in my life. It was that kind of hyperbole. It was hyperbole among her friends. Right, which was presumably what made it controversial. She comes from nowhere. She doesn't seem to be a huge kind of choice, certainly in the public size, and yet her mates kind of get her there. Exactly. That was part of the unease that immediately sprung minutes after the nominations were were announced. There was a sense of, oh, this is kind of elitism at its worst. Growing backlash in Hollywood over the surprise Best Actress nomination for Andrea Riseborough for her role in To Leslie. Pushed into the Oscars spotlight with the help of a grassroots campaign led by Hollywood A-listers. It's this tiny coterie of, of very wealthy and very famous people in Hollywood, making a system that often seems unfair from the outside seem even more unfair that your friends and your mates can get you an Oscar nomination. And when an underdog kind of sneaks around the side, the people that spent millions of dollars panic and yeah, they have to explain they themselves. And it's like, look, if there's a problem with how social, like if you, if you have an issue, the Academy, you know, update your rules behind closed doors and change it for next year. 
Now, I think this is the point at which you should remind us what's at stake here commercially and reputationally, why it is people and organisations might be so anxious to be nominated and then to win. Two basic things, obviously. One is sheer vanity and and, and being inserted within this 100-year tradition. In the 1920s, cinema was sort of disreputable, sort of seedy thing, and the Academy was invented, and it transformed cinema into a proper art form. And the Academy Awards were part of that, and that legacy is is what every single actor on the planet wants to be part of. So that's the vanity element. The big studios will spend anything up to $15 million on an Oscar campaign for their film. So... Yeah, the classic example, you know, James Cameron wants Oscar attention for Avatar Way of Water, you know, the, you know, the biggest movie of the year. But you know, running beside that is the commercial element. Most of the films that now get considered for Oscar attention aren't huge blockbusters. They're smallish movies. And the amount of box office they can reap from an Oscar nomination is huge. The performer gets elevated to a new level where they suddenly become considered for huge films. Their career takes off, but the films themselves... You know, Parasite took $258 million globally, and most of that was after the Oscars. They call it the Oscar bump, and it's anything from 30 to 40 to 50 million and upwards. What can happen to your film if it becomes part of the Oscar conversation, the Oscar race, and everybody wants Oscar attention. It just It's more important for the smaller films to get it. Some listeners might be very surprised to hear there are such things as campaigns at all. How does someone get nominated for an Oscar? Yeah, well, the, the Academy members are doing the nominating. They, they don't put a list out detailing the membership. So all we can say is that at the moment, there are roughly a thousand members of the Academy from different branches, from acting, cinematography, sound, directing. They all have their own branches, and, but they all vote on everybody's awards in the final ballot. So the idea that all these people vote without any influence and based on it's a meritocracy and they just enjoy the movies and, and vote at the end of the year for their favourite movie is beyond ridiculous. They are bombarded <laughs> by the studios. Uh, at so many levels, the studios decide what film is quote-unquote electable. You know, does it have an interesting pitch? Does it have an inspiring message? Is it made by a master like Spielberg? Is there an angle that will make it palatable for a, an Academy member? That's step one. Step two, then, the studio comes in and piles a load of money on it, and then they begin bombarding the members with invites to come to screenings, Q&As. Yeah, it's completely targeted. So it's a joke to think that every year award season is defined by the best films of the year. They are the best films within a certain category that were deemed electable. Now, does lobbying that you're talking about, does it happen for most major awards other than the Oscars? Uh, yes. Every year I'm asked to host back to Q&As, and that's part of the awards thing. The Q&As, weirdly, started with Gladiator. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? It's, this is odd piece of industry lore that's actually true. That Gladiator was one of the first films that had this idea that you'd get Ridley Scott to come along and do a Q&A, be interviewed by a journalist on stage. And Gladiator did really well at the Oscars. And it, it just it became this standard thing that you do Q&As to build up conversations. And the people you invite to the Q&As are all awards voters. So it's to whip up interest around a film and to get the film seen as artistic and interesting and integral to the season. So campaigning begins at Venice Film Festival. It's the first one where all the Hollywood studios, if they want to be taken seriously now, they release their film at Venice. And that's the end of August. And from the end of August right through to March, it's just campaigning hell. 
And if you talk to the actors and they're honest about it, they say it's a complete nightmare. You're just constantly turning up, being asked the same questions about the same film. Why did you make it? What was the best bit? You know, what's the film really about? And they do that all the way to the Oscars. So the Venice Film Festival is kind of the Iowa caucuses of the film industry. Beautiful, beautiful analogy. Yes, it is. It's exactly that. I take it, of course, like anything else, that the lobbying machine has evolved. So when was it put into its present rather aggressive form? Well, well, the form it's in now is so much less aggressive than it was. The bete noir of the whole story is Harvey Weinstein, and his campaigning was so aggressive in the late 90s and early noughties that the rules were changed, and specifically the anti-lobbying rules stop the talent or the producers of the movie having direct access to the Academy members, because Weinstein was famous for that. He was famous for individually going to individual voters, spent you know hours on the phone making thousands of personal phone calls to members of the Academy, famously putting on screenings in Hollywood retirement homes to make sure people who were voters would vote. And it was a complete campaign of intimidation. Um, and so... <laughs> his was the point where they, where they said, look, we've got to stop this. This is getting a bit creepy. What film that I've seen would have been a good example of a film benefiting from his aggressive lobbying before it was outlawed? Yeah, there's so many. The classic one is Shakespeare in Love. We have no Juliet. No Juliet? No Juliet! It'll be all right, madam. What happened to Sam? Who are you? In the Shakespeare in Love is, is a Weinstein movie, and... It was out the same year as Saving Private Ryan. And Saving Private Ryan was an Oscar favourite. It's a master director, Spielberg, huge subject, important message. And Harvey Weinstein's campaign was so aggressive. And you know the shorthand everybody has about Saving Private Ryan, which is the first 20 minutes is the best, and then it's a bit boring. That Apparently that came from Harvey Weinstein. He started this, this ah. sort of whispering campaign that, oh, once you get past the first 20 minutes, it's really boring. He ran a negative campaign against Saving Private Ryan while also pushing Shakespeare in Love, and Shakespeare in Love won the best picture. That was his thing. Negative campaign and bullying Academy members. And so from Weinstein onwards, the whole thing was like, oh my God, how do we keep these uh, pitbull producers away from the, the Academy members? Is that negative campaign, that bad-mouthing, is that still allowed or was that thrown out? No, that's completely thrown out. It's seen as bad form now, this negative campaigning should be used as a weapon against a, a candidate. But two weeks before the final voting, stuff in the press pops up that you're not expecting. So it can still happen, but I, I think it's maybe it's less explicit and less d detectable. Do you have to spend a lot of money to get nominated? Or can you just do it if you've got a bit of time and commitment? The New Yorker ran a piece about two years ago saying uh, the budget is around $16, 17000000 million if you're a studio spending that kind of money on a proper six-month-long Oscar campaign. So because of that, every year, one or two really small films enter the race. And they're the sort of runt of the litter to compete to, to kind of justify the whole system. You still need festival attention. You need media attention. Going back to Andrew Riseborough, that's why it's kind of amazing that she's ended up there. Do the people who vote, the Academy members, do they have to watch all the films? I mean, do they know what they're comparing the films against yeah you know this is a huge bugbear um no of course they don't they don't have to watch anything you can literally vote having not watched a single film and people just they vote with what what they've heard is said you know and a huge problem every year is making sure that people watch the movies coming up 
the race row that is threatening to overshadow this year's Oscars. But first, a word from a colleague. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and every day on my show on Times Radio, we speak to some of the biggest names in the world of the arts, culture and politics. We bring you discussions about new social trends and all the latest news, views and interviews. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Kevin, let's move on to the other big furore, which doesn't happen every year, but it happens quite a few years. I mean, let's go back to 2015. Just remind us about hashtag Oscars so white. 2015 was uh, the year after several years of really serious underrepresentation of black actors. In 2015, there was none in the four best actors, supporting actor, actress, supporting actress. There wasn't a single black actor, black performer in that. As soon as this year's Oscar nominations were announced, a glaring observation. All 20 acting nominees are white. Anger was visible online with the Twitter hashtag OscarSoWhite. And it started off with a tweet of someone saying OscarSoWhite, and it just built into a movement of, of a recognition of a huge imbalance in Hollywood. 
Now to the Oscars, and for the second year in a row, backlash over who was not nominated. It's actually worse than last year, tweeted April Rain, creator of the viral hashtag OscarsSoWhite. And I suppose in fairness to the Academy, they were quite swift to react to it. They rejigged their membership, they invited 300 new members, 400 new members, and I suppose the proof is in the pudding of the next year, I think. It was Moonlight the following year, Get Out, Black Klansman. So there was the, there was a sense that somebody had been slapped on the hand. They realized there was a problem, but there's a huge wider endemic problem in the industry with diversity, lack of representation, lack of female film directors. The Oscar So White campaign, they seemed to reflect something that had gone beyond just a representation, a sample of what was happening in the industry to just these are the type of films we think are Oscar-worthy and suspiciously they're all white. And was it just the Oscars that was implicated in this or were other major film awards also criticised? Oh yeah, my God. BAFTA got absolutely hammered. Joaquin Phoenix famously won Best Actor for Joker at the 2020 BAFTAs. And the BAFTA goes to Joaquin Phoenix for Joker. And he, he turned his acceptance speech into an absolute tearing strips off BAFTA. Uh, I think that we send a very clear message to people of color that you're not welcome here. I think that um, we have to really do the, the hard work to truly understand systemic racism. I think that BAFTA went then subsequently went into meltdown, changed all its rules, got loads of voting committees on board. I think almost went in the opposite direction, almost designed itself out of relevance in terms of voting because they, they hired loads of specialists who only allowed a certain amount of films to be nominated. And I think BAFTA really struggled for about two years with their list and the, the Hollywood Report of Variety. People wrote all these editorials about how BAFTA was really in danger of becoming an irrelevance because it was so nervous about ever having that happen again. And last week, the 2023 BAFTAs again became the subject of controversy. Despite a diverse set of nominees, including ethnic minorities taking up 40% of the acting shortlist places, 47 of the 49 winners across all categories were white. Is racism prevalent in society? That's the kind of bigger question, yes. And it was reflected in all these, these awards that were suspiciously white-heavy. And now let's relate that, what you just told us, to the Riseborough nomination and who was and wasn't nominated for Best Actress. The Riseborough nomination, it's interesting in that context. So up until that point, Daniela Deadweiler for the Emma Till film, Till... Well, I raised him with love for 14 years. My sudden warnings about hate weren't going to get through. And or Viola Davis for The Woman King. I have ended... You have earned nothing. I should put you out. Mm. I have watched soldiers die because they did not have discipline. Both seem to be obvious, logical choices. I adored Daniel Deadweiler's performance until I thought she was incredible. When I saw the film, I just said, right, that's, you know, it's her and Kate Blanchett. They're the two performances to beat this year. The way she was excluded from the Oscars by, basically by the Riseborough nomination, didn't sit well the director of Till, that is Chinoya Chuku, she denounced the film industry for upholding whiteness and also for perpetuating an unabashed misogyny towards black women. Till retells the real-life story of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy who was lynched by a white mob in the US in 1955 
after allegedly offending a white woman. Daniel Deadweiler, who plays his mother, addressed the allegations of industry racism after she was snubbed. If we're still dealing with systemic racism in this country that carries us from the loss of Emmett, there's a trickle-down effect of how racism impacts our lives, from the educational system to the film industry to, to everything. And I think the really important issue, it's one of intersectionality, that it's about race and power, and it's about celebrity power. And so it's not, nobody sat around and said, oh my God, Daniel Deadwiler's black, she's not getting a nomination. It's the fact that the people in power, the celebrities in this instance, happen to be all white and they chose their white friend. For her part, in her first interview since the nominations, Andrea Riseborough said she'd been deeply impacted by the whole affair. She told The Hollywood Reporter, it not only makes sense that this conversation would be sparked, but it is necessary. The film industry is abhorrently unequal in terms of opportunity. I'm mindful not to speak for the experience of other people because they are better placed to speak and I want to listen. Do you think that makes the film industry systemically racist? Or do you think that something else is at work there? Um, God, um, I, I think in, in this case... The element of race in this case feels much more stinging because it's attached to this film about Emmett Till and about lynching. Chinonia Chuku, who directed it, says she suspects that people just didn't want to watch this film. And in America, it's obviously it's a hot-button issue. People ever want to watch Top Gun Maverick instead. So if it sounds like racism and smells like racism, that feels like racism to me, that nobody wanted to be pushed towards a lynching movie. In a statement, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences said, Based on concerns that surfaced last week around the Two Leslie Awards campaign, the Academy began a review into the film's campaigning tactics. The Academy has determined the activity in question does not rise to the level that the film's nomination should be rescinded. However, we did discover social media and outreach campaigning tactics that caused concern. These tactics are being addressed with the responsible parties directly. The purpose of the Academy's campaign regulations is to ensure a fair and ethical awards process. These are the core values of the Academy. Given this review, it is apparent that components of the regulations must be clarified to help create a better framework for respectful, inclusive and unbiased campaigning. These changes will be made after this award cycle and will be shared with our membership. The Academy strives to create an environment where votes are based solely on the artistic and technical merits of the eligible films and achievements. Kevin, let's talk about some more general aspects of this. Can awards nominations ever be remotely fair? Aren't we just going to have, increasingly, as we think about diversity, we think about who's included and who's not included and why, aren't we increasingly going to talk ourselves out of having these awards because we could never get it right? Yeah, but that's that's like every sort of creative expression nowadays. It's like, you know, who isn't being representative and who is. But I, I think within the noise and the narratives and the complaints and the scandals and, and the hashtags... There is usually a core of really interesting, good cinematic art at the heart of it. And 
some of the movies this year I love. I love The Banshees, I love Tar, you know, I think these are great, great films. So it goes back to the, why the Academy was created originally, to flag up the notion that movies are art. Right, okay, and that's an interesting function, um, which is to kind of give publicity to the idea of the artistic side of cinema, which, as you said, was the original reason why the Academy Awards took off. I want to put a more general point to you, which is about awards generally, just my observation after a fairly long time in the journalistic business, which is I think they're mostly rubbish, I think they're rubbish for books. I think they're rubbish for journalist awards. I don't think that the best people usually win, and I don't think it seems that important to people that the best people usually win. It's about something else, and yet we treat it at face value. So that's my kind of prospectus. You think I've got that wrong. You think they have more value than that. I'm working from within this paradigm where big, dumb, stupid Marvel movies are taking up more and more every year, more and more screens in your multiplex. They're pushing out smaller art house films. Money is so short on the ground. When I started doing this, exciting, interesting films like Fight Club could be made and they'd cost about $50 million and that was thrilling. That's all gone now. So it's huge movies and tiny, tiny, maybe little horror movies or maybe a small rom-com or something. So within that system, I'm completely pro-awards just for all the media noise it generates. If only for that, just for the sense that, you know, hey folks, you, you don't always have to go to a Marvel movie. You know, it's, it's, it's movies as art, he says. Kevin, finally, do you think the rise of controversy will change anything about the industry and who it awards? Yeah, they say they're going to look at changing their rules over tweeting now and online campaigning because they noticed that several of the tweets in support of Andrea Riseborough's film had the same phrasing. They're like, the small movie with the big heart. <laughs> Everybody's, all her celebrity friends seem to be saying the one thing. And suddenly it looked very suspect that they'd just been handed a sort of publicist's guff sheet and they just copied it and put it on their tweets. But on a wider scale, I think it's 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 just a lot of people have egg in their face and it looks embarrassing. Yeah, I, I look forward to the time when people advertise a big movie with a small heart. Nice. But that's most of them, according yeah. to you. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Chief Film Critic of The Times, Kevin Maher. You can find all of Kevin's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Sam Chantarasak and Emma Taggart. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. And if you can, please leave us a review. It'll help others to find us. See you tomorrow.